Good morning, church. The scripture passage this morning is in Luke 22, verses 14 through 16. You can find it on page 1605 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 22, 14 through 16. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Becca. I completely forgot to put my mic back on after the baptism's last service. So it'll be a little bit more like a nightclub than normal. Um, hey everyone, my name's Nick. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. We're, this last spring we've been talking about um, joy a lot, specifically out of the Old Testament festivals. And um, one of the things that has kind of come home to roost for me as I have personally tried to honestly deal with the stuff I'm preaching myself is, is that I'm not a very good celebrator. Um, it's partly because I'm busy. It's partly because I have an analyst's mind. It's partly because I'm lazy. It's partly because I'm, I'm not very thankful for things that I expect. And um, it's partly because I just, I just don't put forward the energy because I don't think in terms of like I'm a human being and I need these rhythms in my life and I need to like act to be happy about normal things or I'll just be angry all the time. Um, but one of the things that that's me on the side there, not super loving that hug. Uh, but uh, this is one of the ways in which that I am not like God at all. And hopefully I'll be more like Christ as I age in him. Um, the Bible says that the first, the first six days of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. And every time he created something, he said it was good. And when he got done with all of it, he said it was very good. And whether you believe that that was six days or four billion years, that's a pretty good string of happiness, right? Like if it's four billion years, that's a really good string of happiness. But there's probably, there's probably a lot of people in this room that like if you could get six days in a row of good times, you would go for that. You would like, you would take that in a second, right? And then even after um, human beings messed things up and sin came into the world and we started screwing up the creation God was so happy with, right? He didn't just wipe us out and kill everyone. He's, he began to make us a people. And, and even the law that he gave, when he gave his law, in that law, he commanded the people absolutely that they absolutely had to celebrate 75 days a year. And they had to mourn and cry and weep and fast one day. 75 days-ish, depending on some calendar issues, to one day. Because God's a God of joy. He's happy. He's always been happy. And he, he wants the creatures that bear his image to be happy. Not in a shallow, self-centered, YOLO kind of sense, but in, in a deep, meaningful, image-bearing, united with the universe that he's created and that we're a part of with him kind of happy. He's a God of joy, right? In fact, 
Um, what we call Good Friday and Easter, most of the rest of the world doesn't. We call Friday Good Friday. Most of the world calls Fri last Friday Black Friday. But like we, as good Americans, you know, we've used that idiom up for commerce. But most of the world calls last Friday Black Friday, and most of the world doesn't call this day Easter. We call it Easter because, um, because America, um, our language mostly came from Old German and Greek. And in Old German, the very old word for rising or dawn is like eoster or something. The, uh, the Germans among us will correct me after the service. And then that came with the Saxons to England, and we call it Easter, right? In almost the whole rest of the world, it's called the Paschal Week. Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia, China, India— Samaritan Christians, Assyrian Christians, North African Christians, everybody, everybody, everybody besides us calls it the Paschal Week because Paschal stands for the Passover, and this is the Passover week. That is, it was the first of the three great celebrations of the Jewish people. The Good Friday where we have our, like, our, our services of mourning, that, that was a celebration feast week for the Jews. Um, so today, I want to just want to go through those few words that Jesus said, and I just want to ask three very simple questions, which is just, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus mean? And what does that mean for us? And I, I am the sort of person that does not like summaries. I don't like summaries because I have kind of an analyst mind, and I want to see the data myself, and I want to interpret the data myself. So even in like scientific or data kinds of things, like I, I don't like summaries. But summaries are worst with narratives, with stories. If something's a story, man, summing it up basically destroys the whole thing. It's like saying, oh yeah, so college basketball this year, a bunch of kids got together, played a bunch of basketball, some shots were made in relatively dramatic fashion, and now there's two left. Right? Do you feel the madness? Like, did you, did you feel the, like, ringing satisfaction of experiencing that? Right? One of the things that people miss out on is that miracle has— Miracle. Easter, or the Paschal week, has multiple miracles. The one we key on is the resurrection of the Son of God. And that's because we think of ourselves as scientific people. And so a dead man coming back to life and defeating death is way outside our basic mental expectations because we generally think that dead people stay dead. And so because of the way we think about the world, that's the biggest deal for us. We're like, hey, listen, Man, somebody was dead and came back to life. Like, that's a, that's a thing, man. Okay, that was, that was always a big thing, okay, because it's a big thing. Okay, but there's, there's more miracle than that. And part of the miracle is God's providential story that he told over 3,000 years and how all of the pieces kind of went together such that if we were capable of appreciating it, we would just get rid of the Oscars because it wouldn't be worth celebrating every year because the greatest storyteller would be the God of the Scriptures. And that's what we don't normally take in, right? Because, but that's, that's how Jesus looked at this, right? He comes to this thing. Okay, but before I like try to work it out a little bit, if we were going to summarize it, I'd summarize it something like this. If you look at all of the story of salvation and you try to understand the big idea of everything that God is trying to do, it would be something like, God wants you to be free so that you can belong to him and so that you can celebrate with him. God wants you to be free so that you could belong to him and so you can celebrate with him. 
right? Okay, so let's go through the things. First, what did Jesus say? So this is the first line, the first sentence of the Last Supper. And so Luke is telling us, this is what the Last Supper meant to Jesus. That's the point of this sentence. And what it says is, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, it is not generally considered good English to translate English this way. A great desire I have greatly desired. But that's what that first idiom means, okay? So in the English translations, we clean it up a little bit because it doesn't translate well into English. But the word that Jesus uses is the word later in the New Testament translated covet, like the, in the bad sense, like that you want it so bad, you will break any rule and you will destroy anyone else and you will, you will even, it doesn't matter what it is, you're going to go get this thing, right? Now, part of the reason why we would use this, that the biblical authors would use this word, this word here is because for most of us, because of the condition that we're in, a lot of our deepest longings are for the things that are the most ugly, that are the most sinful, that we shouldn't want, but those are the things we want the worst. We want them so bad. And so we have a word for that, covet, which means that the desire is out of control in the negative sense. But then there isn't another word in Greek for like, what if it's, what if it's a desire that's out of control in the good sense? That you're willing to give up anything to have it, right? And in that sense, so Luke uses that word twice. With a great, great desire have I greatly desired to do whatever I'm about to do. And so it's interesting because Jesus doesn't use an idiom like that anywhere else in the whole Bible. This is arguably Jesus' most intense idiom. So whatever is coming next is kind of a big deal, which of course is that he wanted to eat the Passover with his disciples. If you actually read the beginning of Luke 22 through to this verse, the word Passover shows up like five times. Luke really wants to make sure that we know it's Passover. At the pa- when the Passover came, when it's time to kill the Passover lamb, Jesus sent his people to ask, where is the teacher going to celebrate the Passover? Because the Passover's here, because the Passover's coming, because Jesus really wants to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. So we're supposed to get it to the Passover, and I'll get to what that means in point number two. But whatever it means, it means at least two things. One, it makes sense of his suffering, because he wanted to eat this meal with them right before he suffers. Because he wanted them to understand that whatever his suffering means, it means what the Passover means. And it's also not just a festival of the past. Jesus says that the real and true fulfillment of the Passover feast will happen in the end, at the time of the kingdom of God, which in this case, the kingdom of God means the end, like what we call heaven, where the dwelling place of God is with men and women right? Sometimes kingdom of God in the Bible means God's presence among us in certain kinds of ways. In this context, it means the end. That is that this meal he's eating, which reaches all the way back to the first Passover, reaches all the way forward to the kingdom of God in the end. And that's what it means. That's when it'll be fulfilled. Okay, so you could look at that and say, okay, that's great, Nick, but what the heck does the Passover mean? And so for those of you who are not used to this kind of stuff, because this, this stuff is in the Old Testament, and a lot of Christians haven't ever read it, the Passover is this moment where the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt to the, to the point of genocidal slavery, like the Egyptians are killing all their male children, right? 
and um, they cry out to God, and God sends Moses, this guy who's, he's a, they call him a prophet, but he's like a prophet, savior, king, religion inventor, judge, like he's everything, which is why in Hebrews it can say that Jesus was greater than Moses as a steward over all God's house, because calling Moses a prophet is like, it's too small. Moses was like everything. He was a savior. And so when Hebrews says that Jesus is greater than Moses over all God's house, it really says something, right? And Moses comes, and through Moses, God brings ten plagues on Egypt. Nine of them were pretty bad. The last one, God actually kills the firstborn child and animal in every genetic line in Egypt. And the only way you can escape that death is by killing a Passover lamb, taking some of the blood and putting it on the door frames of the house, and then taking the lamb and roasting it and eating a meal— the Passover meal, inside the house of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and lamb. And get ready to go, because God is going to bring you out of the land of slavery. Now, what, what that means is when you—and so it's, it's not just that day, right? Because if you read the, the Bible in the Old Testament in particular, there's three festivals during this week. It's, it's nine days. Nine days. So Passover is the first day. And then following that is eight days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you can't have any, any leaven in your bread. That's pretty self-explanatory, I hope. Okay, great. You guys are sharp. Okay, and then the third day, the Sunday, is what's called the Feast of, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, where the very first harvest of the year is coming in, and the priest has to wave some of the grain in front of God, and then they have a sacrifice— right? And it's another feast. It's a second feast, okay? And all that happens in nine days, and it's all this big festival. Now, the, the reason why that's important is because it, it kind of, it reveals the entire dynamic of salvation that God reveals again and again in the Bible. So let's just track it with me here for just a second, right? So you get the original, the original Exodus and the original Passover, where God by hiding his people under the blood of the lamb, they escape the destroying angel and they come out of slavery, right? They pass through the Red Sea. They come into the desert and they eat a meal with God. They, they become God's people. Then they wander in the desert until they come into the promised land. Okay? So they, the Jewish people then celebrated that by celebrating the Passover, which celebrated this, right? And then they had a Sabbath day where they rested— and then they celebrated God's giving provision for them, right? And then they, but then it wasn't, it, the, the unleavened bread wasn't over. They still had six more days of that. And then they had a sacred assembly, right? So then Jesus shows up and he's like, okay, so you get this? Jesus is the Passover lamb. He passes through the grave, which is like passing through the death of the Red Sea. And then— he rises from the dead. Get it? Rising from the dead is like a harvest. And he's the first fruit of that harvest. Get it? It's the feast of first fruits. So Jesus is the first fruits of among, from among the dead, who rises on Sunday morning at the celebration of first fruits. Right? Hopefully this isn't too literal. God has been work, was working this out for a thousand years to, to help us get the picture, right? Now think about this. Jesus rises from the dead, and it's not over. It's not—you're not in heaven now, right? You're not. You're still 
you're still in the week of unleavened bread. You're still eating the bread of affliction. Get it? But you're in the time of this first harvest, the first roots coming in until the last sacred assembly and the feast, all the feasts of the year, all the way to, and at the end of the year, the Jews had the feast of ingathering where all of the crops were brought in. Does that make sense? And so then Jesus teaches that that's how personal salvation goes too. You have to hide yourself under the Passover lamb's blood to escape the destroying angel of God's condemnation and death. Right? Through faith and repentance. Then you pass through the Red Sea of Baptism where you identify and become God's people and all the sins that are chasing you get drowned. But then you walk out into a wilderness-like land where you, things aren't the way they were and they're scary, right? Deserts are scary because where's the water going to come from? And where's the food going to come from? And how are you going to survive out here? And it's going to get really hot and I don't normally live in a place like this, right? Do you get it? That's what life is like especially if you trust God. Life is like that. You're, you're in the desert, and you're trying to figure things out. And so you come through baptism, and then the first fruits that we receive of the harvest of heaven is the presence of God, right? The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the first fruits of the kingdom of God. So the, the first harvest of heaven, we, get, we don't get to go to heaven. Would it, it would be great if you got to go to heaven for like a day. Wouldn't that be really cool? You become a Christian, you get baptized, you go to heaven for a day. There's like a shuttle. And you get to like, you know, be there and like go to their coffee shops and like, you know, shop or whatever and like talk to Jesus for a bit and do some heaven stuff. And you're like, this is really good. This is, I like heaven. And they're like, okay, your time is up. You're going to be going back. So you have to ride the shuttle back and like, but you're like, you're feeling pretty good about it. That's not how it works, okay? How it works is God comes to you in the person of the Holy Spirit the promise of the indwelling of the Spirit and Him enlivening your conscience and regenerating you from the inside out and reworking you from the inside out is that first fruits of salvation. Preparing you in the land of the bread of affliction until that final assembly and until the feast finds its end in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So if that's the metaphor of salvation, then what does that mean for us? And it means something very, very direct, okay? It means that you and I, through faith and repentance, need to come up and get out of the land of slavery. That's what it means. You see, the New Testament Jewish authors, though real slavery was in their past, what they understood was is that the, the truth of the salvation of God for all people was that the greatest slavery of human beings, of, of mankind, is sin. That's what they understood. They didn't think that minimized the real, the physical slavery of their ancestors at all. And they realized that the, that was the main metaphor of salvation. Now, you might not think that, but think about this for a second. When we talk about Jesus, now African-American churches are better on this. Somehow or another, they figured out that the main metaphor of salvation in the Bible was released from slavery. I don't know how they figured that out, right? But they did. They've got songs, a lot of songs about Moses coming out, God bringing us out, right? But if you go to a lot of other Bible-believing churches, right, it's all about the atonement. Jesus dies as the atoning sacrifice for our sins to put away our sins so that we can be forgiven so we don't have to be condemned to hell. All that's true right? But if that was the main focus, if that was the everything, 
Like, don't you think God could have worked it out so that Jesus died on the Day of the Atonement in the fall? I mean, the Jews had a whole other celebration in the fall called the Day of Atonement, which was fasting and mourning over sin, where God had them select two lambs, one to be slaughtered as the atoning sacrifice, and the other to be the expiating sacrifice, the one that took the sins out away. And so they laid their hands on this goat and, or lamb, and they took it out into the desert to symbolize all the sins of the people being taken away forever and being set right with God again. I mean, don't you think God could have worked it out that Jesus could have gotten himself killed on that day? Because he didn't. He didn't on purpose. It was on purpose. Passover is the fundamental dynamic of salvation for all people. You see, you and I, what we really think is, if we were able, if like, if somebody injected you with truth serum, and they said, do you think that God wants to set you free from everything that makes you a slave, or do you think that you're free, and if you choose to follow and really trust God, really trust him, that you'll feel like you're a slave, right? If we had enough truth serum in our, in our blood, most of us would say the latter. We'd say, man, I'm sure these rules are well-meaning and stuff, but I'm just— I'm not going to really—I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to feel, right? That's what we really think. And you see, in the entire dynamic and drama of the entire history of salvation, God is saying that's not true. The, that's the whole point of Jesus being the Passover lamb. The whole point of that is to say, sin is the great slavery and destroyer of all mankind. We are slaves to it. We allow it to destroy us. We accept its bitterness. We relish its hatreds. We, we live in its fears. We, we watch it destroy us and destroy our children. And we just, we're too afraid to leave. We're too afraid to fight. We're too afraid to go up. We don't think we can change. It would take a miracle. Which is the whole point. That the Jews were saved out of slavery by miracles. By plagues and the destroying angel, and being led out in the parting of a sea, and being taken out of the most powerful empire of the time, as the people who maybe were the weakest people of that time. One of the reasons why that's hard for us is because we know God doesn't make false promises, and we know that when the people came through the Red Sea, they went out into the desert. And we know darn well that that's where we're going to be. And we don't want to live there. We don't want—we we think it's better to live as slaves in the land with the big river than free out in the desert where we don't know what's going to be provided for us. How are we ever going to be happy out there? Right? Because it's true. Like, if you follow the metaphor, Jesus rises from the dead, but we're still in— we're still, like, metaphorically speaking, in that week of unleavened bread. You're still eating the bread of affliction. Life is hard. Life is going to be hard. If you come to Jesus, your life is not going to be easy. It's possible it'll get harder in certain ways. Probably not in other ways. Because sin is really hard on us. But life is really hard on us. And other people's sins are really hard on us. And you're going to be eating the bread of affliction. Like, you're going to get old, and your back is going to hurt, and people are going to lie to you. And it's going to be like that, okay? But there's a, there is one difference. And I hope that this is biblical precedent, that there isn't salad in heaven. 
And that is, if you look at the two great feasts of Passover week, you know what the, you know what the food from the first one is at Passover? What were the three things I said? It was lamb. No, 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 I can't. Yeah, you're all right, I'm sure. I just, yeah. Unleavened bread and bitter herbs, right? Salad. <laughs> With kale. Right? I'm just joking. I grow kale. Um, the Feast of First Fruits also has three foods. And it is a feast. Even though it's a sacrifice, it's a fellowship offering. And so the people were supposed to eat it together in the presence of God. It was considered the most holy food, so it was a meal with God. But it was a meal, and they were to eat it, and it had three things, and one was lamb, just like the other one. And one was unleavened bread, just like the other one. You know what the third thing was? Wine. You tell me the Christian God is stuffy. You try to argue that. This is the commanded food. Okay? Now, do you get it? Whether you're a Christian or not, you live in the land of unleavened bread. Doesn't matter which you are. You can hate God, you're in, la you're in the land of unleavened bread. You can love Jesus, you're in the land of unleavened bread. Okay? Like, life is hard. And until the day comes when the final feast is fulfilled, we're eating unleavened bread, so to speak the bread of affliction. But you get to pick what you want to garnish that meal with. You can, you can be in the land of slavery, and you can be filled with the bitterness of sin. It's slaveries, it's hatreds, it's fears, it's lies, it's destruction of your future. Or you can have the wine— of the promise of the first fruits of the one who's come up from among the dead. You can have the wine of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit leading you each day. You can have the wine of the happinesses of the promises of God. You can have the wine of forgiveness both to you and from you. You can drink wine in the land of unleavened bread. But you can only do it if you're willing to come under the Passover lamb, come through the burial and resurrection of baptism through its Red Sea, and to stand on the day of first fruits and embrace what God has given you now, and to walk in the harvest time of affliction until the feast finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You've got to come up, and you've got to come out, and you've got to eat the meal that God has given you now. So there's two great festivals in the Christian church. Two great ordinances, two great um, rituals that we do. One is the Lord's Supper, where we eat the meal that God has given us now. The unleavened bread, which symbolizes—listen, unleavened bread is unleavened. It's not that great bread, right? It's not that great bread. But listen, it's bread. Do you get the metaphor? It's, it's still bread. Like, God gave them wheat. It's, you have something to eat. Like, what we want to be like, well, it's unleavened. I don't like God. Well, he gave you bread. Like, you can be happy in bread, right? And so you, we eat this conflicted thing where God has provided for us, and yet we still live in the land of suffering, and we recognize that. And we can follow the one whose body was broken for us. And when he gave this to us, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that is given for many to take away sins. And this Passover meal is how we proclaim and how we profess and how we grow in the conviction that God has called us up and out of the land of slavery. And normally we have a tiny little cracker and a tiny little thimble.